Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I'm going to tell you people, I'm only as hip as my guest, but I am getting hipper. I've got this new single-serve coffee combo from Cafe Valet, and it's excellent. Their brewers are inexpensive, as little as $25 for a brewer, and that comes with 10 sample coffee packs, or just $20 when you use the discount code Cooper. Compared to other single-serve coffee systems, you can save up to 100 bucks. And you know me, I'm cheap, so 100 bucks is a lot for me. So with Cafe Valet, I get a great-tasting cup of coffee, brewed in just minutes, just the way I like it, and that's every time I try. So how's that for being hip, people? So go to CafeValet.com and use the word Cooper and save even more. That's CafeValet.com, and the coupon code is Cooper, and you get this combo for just 20 bucks. And I'm telling you, it's a good cup of coffee. You know, I only drink the decaf, but they have good decaf. So anyway... Enough about that. We, uh, my guest today is so funny. We're going to talk about, well, he came to talk about his book. Uh, his name's Ivor Davis. How are you doing, Ivor? I'm terrific. Thanks, Steve. Yeah. Well, he came to talk about his book, Beatles and Me, but he's just has a, he's had a fascinating career. I mean, he, he wrote a book about Sharon Tate, which I had just, I just watched the show Aquarius. So I'm very attuned to that stuff. And his book, the, you know, the Beatles tour was in 1964. I was born in 63. So it's a big thing. But it turns out we are the same soccer fan. Now, you're how long have you been a Tottenham Hotspurs fan? When I was a kid growing up in the East End of London, every week I used to get the bus to watch Tottenham play. And they were North London. That's where I grew up in, White Hart Lane. I'm, I'm a Spurs fan through and through. Well, I became one, and you'll appreciate this because you're a soccer fan. My friend David, we call him English David. He's from London. He's a Manchester United fan. And he was going back to England, and I said, bring me back a soccer shirt. Okay, I want, I want, to, I want to root for a team. I said, but I don't want Manchester United because every American does that. But I want to root for Manchester United. I don't write Arsenal because everyone, and I don't want Chelsea. I don't want the big three, you know. And so he came back with a Tottenham fan shirt, and then I, I was like, that's my team. And uh, I mean, I don't, I don't follow as much right now, but you said they're doing well. They're doing very well. They're second, third in the league. They have a chance of getting into the European Championship, which is really the key thing. And they've got some great young players uh, and goal scorers, and they're a, a pleasure to watch now. Okay, so now you grew up in London. And now, at what point, as a kid, did you want to write? Because you've you've worked in journalism and being an author for, it seems like, your whole life. Well, what happened was, when I was a kid, they said to me, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, I, I want to be a detective. Uh, and they, and they, unfortunately, in the London Police Department, you had to be five foot seven and a half inches tall, and I never quite made it. Okay. So... I, I fell back on <laughs> I fell back on reporting because because in reporting you meet perfect strangers and ask them rude and, and and intrusive questions and they'll answer you. So now, what was your what was your first job as a rep? I mean, did you start when did you start actually writing and being reporting? Was it when you got out of high school or when did you actually start following this as a career and then find out that it could be a career and a and a very career with a lot of longevity? Well. First of all, you didn't think that far ahead, to be honest with you, Steve. What I did was I got a job on a weekly newspaper in the East End of London. I mean, I got paid to go to soccer matches and boxing matches and cover stories. I mean, I thought, hell, I mean, I love sport. I love those sports. I'm a, I'm a soccer nut. I used to play semi-professionally in England. And getting a job where they paid me to cover soccer uh, was great and then I kind of graduated from soccer to entertainment and on and on and hard news and soft news and uh, that's how I end up in in Southern California so you I know you also you you wrote some entertainment columns you interviewed a lot of uh, famous people uh, back in your day who are some of the people you interviewed well over the over almost a, a 40 to 50 year career uh, later as a foreign correspondent for the London Daily Express who sent me on the Beatle trip and then the Times of London I interviewed everybody Richard Burton Elizabeth Taylor Muhammad Ali just about every star there was because they all wanted to be in the London newspapers and they gave me the time of day and I kind of enjoyed talking to them and they were sweet and nice to me because uh, because they needed to be now, did you ever have someone who, one of these stars you interviewed that was sort of not a jerk? Because, you know, I, I hate to say jerk because sometimes people are preoccupied, but something where you're doing an interview, and you know how when you interview, you know, you, you want it to go smoothly. Sometimes there's obstacles. Sometimes they're having a crappy day. Did you ever have an interview with one of these celebrities that you were just like in the middle going, man, where am I going to go with this? What am I going to do? Well, I remember interviewing Melanie Griffiths, and then when I went back to my uh, office to transcribe it she didn't make any sense because she was as high as a kite the same thing happened to robert downey jr 
but but the times when people were sober tommy lee jones was a terrible interview because he hated it and believe it or not he wasn't a jerk but he was a bad interview harrison ford harrison ford would spend 45 minutes with you and answer every question yes and no see that's that's the worst you know because that's the thing yes no is it's so it's irritating i had an interview like that a few weeks ago and well not maybe a few months ago so, maybe so, a year ago i'll so, just say so when you did that interview with the yes no person didn't you tell them to loosen up a bit well you want to you you want to try and just it, it was so funny because you sit there and it's like i try to sit there and say, we, we talk you know that's the thing this conversation and you, you do you just want to say hey man we're just talking you know i'm not gonna if it's something bad i'm not gonna interview because I'm not. That's not about me. But so, so Harrison Ford. So okay. So now, now the the I'm going to talk about the uh, tape murders. Now, now you wrote a book. You were the first one to write a book on that. How did it all happen? And how were you choosing to be the first person to write the book? Well, what happened was it was a, a big story. Sharon Tate had been murdered. Nobody knew who it was. And then a few months later, um, of course, after Sharon Tate, there were the Lagi Biancas who also murdered senselessly. And then a few months later, they arrested this guy called Charles Manson. And they arrested him, not for murder, for, for car theft. So I went up to see him in Independence. He didn't give me an interview. He, he did give me an interview, but he said he needed me to pay him for it. And I said, we don't pay for interviews. And we didn't do the interview. But he was, on, he was in court for car theft. He, he grew up. He spent his time on the Spahn Ranch, which is a, 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 an old movie ranch on the outskirts of L.A. in Topanga Canyon. And that's where his family, his, his followers, his acolytes lived. So off I went as soon as he was arrested to the ranch. And, um, and I found a, a dozen or so young people who, when I asked them about Manson and his lifestyle, unloaded to me. I, I, was, I, I didn't believe what they told me. They told me the story of drugs and girls and all that kind of stuff, the way that Manson dominated them. And it was unbelievable. I wrote a couple of stories for my newspaper. And then I thought, well, Manson is going to get brought up on these murder charges. Let's let me do a very fast book. And I did a very fast book quoting most of the Manson family members, telling them, uh, writing about the Helter Skelter, the way they thought Beatles, the Beatles had, had given them messages of Manson's. This was Manson's crazy distorted message to his fans to his acolytes and i wrote this very fast book which came out too quickly before the trial and kind of got got forgotten about and then uh, 30 years later aaron stovitz who was a who was a district attorney that was supposed to prosecute but he had a big mouth and he was thrown off the case and a guy called vincent bugliosi took over and got the glory Aaron Stovitz said, Ivor, your book was the blueprint for our murder case. And I was amazed. I didn't realize that. But uh, but it just shows you that I was first out of the starting gate. The book didn't do well. I did re-release it 10 years, 8 years ago, and it did a bit better. But that was my experience. But believe me, I was scared of the Manson gang because when my book came out, and I'm sorry to ramble on like this, but when my book came out, I covered the trial. The girls knew who I was, and when I went down to the trial, they kind of threatened me. I could see that happen because I did. Me and my girlfriend recently watched a uh, documentary about Manson, and it was on A and E or whatever. And that was the thing; they were they were crazy, and they would threaten you. And you think, you know, as a writer, you know, you're writing about their god, and I mean, that would be scary because you know they have no problem murdering someone. It's not like you sit there and go like, like the mafia isn't going to murder a writer because they're going, you know what, it's coming back to us. But they didn't give a crap. So, I mean, that must have been a little, I mean, did you, were you feel yourself looking over your shoulder at times? Well, well, I know, I remember vividly one day, Squeaky Frome, who was not arrested, was sitting there and they'd cut little swastikas into their head. They shaved their heads. They were sitting outside the Hall of Justice in downtown L.A., and the girls knew me by then, and one of them, Squeaky, said to me, Ivor, do you know what it's like to have a, a a knife slid down your throat? And I thought, well, that is a rather a close-to-the-knuckle threat. So basically, uh, somebody called my house. My wife and my young daughter moved out to friends' houses for about two months. So I, w I took it seriously. It must, yeah. It's just, it's it's so crazy. And now, now did, when you met him, did you just, could you feel he was evil? Well, he looked like I was surprised that he was a tiny guy. He had this beard, 
uh, he he didn't go along with what they were saying. They'd ask him things, and he'd ramble on. And I could see there was a sort of a a, a sort of a messianic look to his to his face. And the guys, uh, Paul Watkins, Brooks Poston, who were who were members of the Manson family, told me that Charlie had this uh, mesmerizing ability to get people to do what he told them to do. Now you also you've covered World Cups. Now, what is that like covering the World Cup? And you've won the four of them. Is that what? Yes, I mean, well, soccer, as I mentioned a moment ago, is my passion. I love it. I used to play it. I think I still know soccer. I love to go to games. I love to do commentaries. I did some, some used to do commentaries in the early days. And so, what I did was, I was able to get CBS to send me to Germany, to France, and other countries. Of course, there was a, a World Cup in in LA, in in, in America. Um, and I just went along. And again, it was like a, a banquet, a feast of extraordinary soccer, the world's best playing in one country and i had a front row seat to that and it was a, it was a great assignment being a guy who's who's seen a lot of soccer matches and loved the game who do you say have are your top three soccer players you've ever seen well you know you've got to go back to the early days and there was i mean way back to i'm going to mention people you've probably never heard of um, well, let's start now and walk, work back a bit. I mean, obviously, Lionel Messi, the Barcelonan, Argentinian-born, is, is a miracle worker. I mean, he is a joy to watch. And there are other guys. I mean, Tottenham has uh, has new young players. There was a guy in England I used to adore called Cliff Jones. And he was a left winger, and I played left wing. And Cliff Jones kind of was like a rocket-propelled left winger when he got the ball nobody could stay near him so there are so many players there was back in the early days a guy called tommy lawton whenever the ball came across tommy lawton could get higher than anyone and he headed most of his goals but the the game has changed enormously today i think it is like five times faster than it was when i started going in the early days because they are fit and the pace of english Premier League soccer is unbelievable. If you watch it, and I'm sure you do, and now you can get it live at 4.45 in the morning, yep. uh, all the way through, uh, the game is a speed, velocity, energy, non-stop. It can be a goal effort one minute, and then three seconds later, at the other end, they've got to the other end. So it is, it is exciting and exuberant to watch. Okay, so now uh, you're a soccer fan, you, you've covered these murder stories, you've been writing for years, but your first big assignment was with the Beatles, and that's the book you wrote, and your book came out, it's called The Beatles and Me, it's on tour with the Beatles, and I said it's 1964, I was born in 63, so I'm like, that's cool. You know, I mean, I didn't, I was one, I'm sure I didn't watch it, I'm sure my, you know. But now, how did that all come about? How did this whole book come about? And I know you were brought to L.A., and this was your first big assignment in L.A., but you were here for a year before you started writing the book, right? So did they want you to head up the L.A.? And what did you think about moving from England to L.A.? Because you're coming to Sunshine, and you got it like that. Well, first of all, I always liked the sunshine of Southern California, so I was delighted when the Daily Express said, would you like to be our one-man West Coast Bureau? They had about six people in New York and about two people in Washington. I said, great. I'd done a few stories as a freelance for them, covering Peter Sellers' heart attack and stories like that. They liked the way I worked, and they offered me the assignment to open a bureau. Very soon after that, I got this call from David English, the editor, and he said, get on the plane to San Francisco. You're traveling with the Beatles on their first American tour. Now, I should, if I may just put it in perspective, oh, yeah. in February 1964, and everybody remembers this, the Beatles came to New York City and they appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show. And that was a sensational success. Ed Sullivan, the Beatles, you couldn't hear a word they were singing, but that didn't matter. And Brian Epstein, the Beatles manager, very shrewd guy, said they were hugely successful on Ed Sullivan. Let's go on an American tour. Because Brian was worried that other British artist Tommy Steele and a few people like that had come to America and done done rather miserably but the Beatles were primed after the Ed Sullivan show and off they went to San Francisco in August of 1964 and there was me jumping on the plane joining them in San Francisco and being part of the entourage and when I say part of the entourage Steve I mean I, I was in the next room to their suite uh, I traveled on the same private jet I, I, I was in the second limo so 
we had access back then that you cannot ever get today. Well, it must be something. I mean, were, were you a big fan of theirs before you went on the road with them? The answer to that is no. I mean, I never, I'd heard them on the, I'd seen them on the Ed Sullivan show, as, as did 74 million people who tuned in to that, to that Ed Sullivan show. And I liked their music. I liked Elvis better, and I liked Buddy Holly and the people, Bell Haley, Rock Around the Clock. And to be honest, I'd heard about them. And don't forget, in 64, communication, we didn't have the internet. So the only way I could hear about them is maybe on radio or, or, or my newspaper sent me a bunch of clippings, which took 10 days to arrive. Right. I was in Los Angeles. So um, the communication skills then were, were, were barely, barely there. And so I, I, I knew a little bit about them, but I was blown away when I went to the first concert in San Francisco at the Cow Palace because it was screaming from start to finish. And I thought, uh, this is insane. And Derek Taylor, the press agent for the Beatles, said, this is Beatlemania, Ivor. You're going to have to learn to live with it. Now, did you think, I mean, you know, as you said, you, you didn't really know. You know, you saw what they did on the Ed Sullivan show. But let's be honest. There's other bands that have made these great appearances. And then after a few years, they fizzle. Did you ever sit there and think when you were sitting there and you had this this project, you're going to go or you're on the road for them for a while. So you're, there's no leaving. You know, did you ever think, though, in your mind, did you, uh, first of all, at what point in your mind did you sit there and say, these? this is going to be one of the biggest bands in the history? And I don't mean like in the 60s or 70s. I mean, in the history of music. Was there a certain point where you sat there and said, this, I'm, I'm looking at something that's just going to change music? I wish I could have said that. I was young, like the Beatles. I was 25, and they were 21, 22, 23. I never knew that today we would be talking about them and, and that, the, 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 you know, they changed rock and roll history. They never knew. They thought it would last three or four or five years. But so if I could say I was so wise, uh, Steve, <laughs> I, wow, I saw them and I said, this is the start of something big. I followed them and I, I was amazed at the reception, at the, at the frenzy, at the hysteria. But I thought when, when the tour ended, uh, that they would go on to do something else, and they thought they would go on to do some something else. And I always tell this story uh, because Ringo said, uh, I, I said, what do you want to do with all the money you've made, Ringo? And Ringo said, I want to open a ladies' hairdressing salon. And that's, that's all he thought this was going to happen. He was going to take the money and run. Well, he took the money, and he's still taking the money and running. And not running, but staying. Exactly. Now, what was your first impression of each one when you met them? Well, it was at the San Francisco Hilton Hotel. Uh, I arrived, and Derek Taylor took me to meet the boys and introduced me to the Beatles. And frankly, they couldn't care less. I, I discovered that it was severely jet lagged, and and our first conversation was, "Hi, this is Ivor," uh, and it was a grunt. And then they turned back to watching watching themselves on a on a on a color television, a giant screen of about fourteen inches, arriving at San Francisco. They were fascinated with color TV because they didn't have color TV in England at that time. So the reaction I got for them was pretty nondescript. I mean, I could have been the the the, the, the room service waiter. They sort of said hi, but later on, as we got along, and they and, and I was trapped with them in their hotel and in their in in, in their jet. Uh, we became friendly because I was an escape valve. They couldn't leave the hotel, so they ended up stuck with me and a few of the other radio guys that were on the tour. Now, now, what would tell me some of the? Because I love stories, and I love stories about music. I do, and this is your book is stories, and that's what's great. And it's your, it's about your tour with them. Tell me some of the bad, the good stories you liked, and tell me some stuff that you didn't put in a book because. Not nah, it wasn't too risque, but I'm sure you have to, certainly when you do a book, you go through editors and stuff like that. But what were some, just tell me some of the, the highlights. And I, the funny thing is, when I was going through the book, it's so funny because they played at the Atlantic City Convention Center. And when I was a kid, we used to go to the Atlantic City Boardwalk. And back then, because I grew up 10, uh, an hour from there, back then you could go to Atlantic City and it was a nice family place. Now, not so much. And it's so funny because it was, it was like, a, I think it said it held 18,000 or 13,000. And then they also played in Philadelphia. And it was just, it's so funny for me to sit there and go, God, you know, I was alive then, but that place is gone now. But uh, what was, what were some of the highlights or just tell me some good stories or tell me some, some things, some, just tell me some dirt that's not real bad. 
Well, uh, uh, dirt that's not real bad. You've got to realize that I knew instinctively that if I wrote about the, the some of the women that came calling, if I wrote about uh, the time in Las Vegas when uh, the, the cops were called in because there was an underage girl in John's room, I knew instinctively that if I sent that to my paper, that Brian would probably say either the story ran in, in, in the Daily Express uh, about John and this young lady, and uh, uh, we, we, here's, your, here's your return ticket, see you, kid. So we protected them. I mean, it was like that. But the funny thing is, I could write about 50 years later that stuff I couldn't write about then. One example, and you mentioned Atlantic City, now, I was amazed that this happened. We knew that the, there were girls in the Beatles, and most of them, except for John, who was married, uh, was, were footloose and fancy free. At Atlantic City, the promoter was so thrilled with the turnout that he decided to give them a treat. So we all showed up in this big room on the top floor, the penthouse area, and they were going to show us the Beatles' new movie, A Hard Day's Night. So we showed up, and as we showed up, and before the lights went down, and there was a little selected group of people that were invited, um, in through the door came about eight young women, rather scantily clad, and the promoter in front of us all said, boys, take your pick. And the Beatles were stunned, and believe it or not, after about 32 seconds, they all took their pick, and they, in hand in hand, they left the room. The lights went down, and we watched the movie. And then when the lights came up again, the Beatles were back with some of these ladies watching the rest of the movie. I don't think, uh, you know, it doesn't leave a huge imagination to know what was what was going right. on there. But I certainly wasn't going to send a story saying, uh, Beatles team up with beautiful hookers. Right. <laughs> it, it wasn't. The image. And the Beatles were scrubbed and clean cut and all the rest of it. And parents thought their kids were safe with the Beatles. Now, looking back on it, because as you said, there was all that stuff. And now, you know, you're a journalist and there's stuff like TMZ that, you know, no one can do anything anymore. I mean, let's get real. You, I mean, you, you can't, if you're a celebrity, you can't even, if you joking around, crush with one of your friends on the street, then it would come out and be like, oh, such and such yelled, called this guy an ass. What do you see? That, I mean, how do you think it would have been different if you had covered? Well, actually, could there ever be the like, coverage of a first tour like you did these days, or is it just too much that you no one would listen to your work because you were you were the voice, you were sitting in the article. Now there's eight thousand voices. That's 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 the problem. I mean, there's no way, and that's why I think press agents and managers keep a bodyguard, keep a, a, an invisible iron curtain between the talent and the press. Because you know what with, with, with iPhones and all that stuff, that if anything untoward happened, and I use that word rather loosely, then somebody would have it on their iPhone, and within 30 seconds it would be on Twitter, it would be all over the place. And so now... Uh, if you if you ever do an interview with a star, they make you sign things. I understand that, that this is only being done for uh, for Steve's show and anywhere else. Uh, no way. And so the protective barrier today is unbelievable, but it did not exist 50 years ago. And that was part of the fun. That was part of the joy. And a, a story like I told you about the hookers in Atlantic City with the with the Beatles would have been all over the place, and they will somebody would have had footage running. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> so it's it 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 it'll never be the same again. Now, as you start off writing on the tour, okay, do you see the store the tour gaining momentum? And is your writing what you're writing? Is that changing as you're getting to know them because in the beginning you know i mean it's like anything you spend a long time with them you, you're going to become friendly with them even though your room next to them you're their comrade i mean you're you're their liaison to the public how did your relationship grow and at what points did you notice i mean was there any certain examples of any city where you know you maybe bailed them out or or you you just you not bailed them out of jail but if when you if you bailed them out or you sat there and really noticed that there was a little bit of a bond well, the bond grew slowly because they basically had to uh, learn to trust you because they'd never met me. They'd never met most of the DJs or the, the, the music uh, rock uh, station people that came and went. But what happened was it took a little bit of time. But once they realized that I was part of the Beatle family, uh, then they sort of loosened up. 
I remember my, my, part of my job for the Daily Express was to write George Harrison's column. I ghost wrote it. And I must tell you that, first of all, um, George Harrison wasn't available to talk to me. He was being paid by my newspaper to tell me his feelings. But he never woke up until three in the afternoon because he'd been partying or drinking and they stay up until three. And and so I finally had a deadline to make and I made up the, the, the columns. And then about two weeks into the tour, George got me on the plane and said, your column that you're writing for me is a bunch of old rubbish. He used stronger terms than rubbish. <laughs> and I said that, George, if you took a few minutes to sit down with me, then it might help. And I wouldn't write a load of old rubbish. And it was a load of old rubbish because when I looked back at them, it was trite claptrap. Uh, but I had to write something and I had to play it safe. I couldn't say George said this when I never talked to George. Anyway, long story short, George and I became much friendlier after that. George started to talk to me. George was never a guy that poured his heart out to anybody. George was a, a taciturn, sometimes fairly sullen, because he was probably the most uh, uncertain of all the Beatles. I mean, Paul was Mr. Flimflam, we were Mr. Smoothie. John was just outrageous and great to know and great to talk to and, and, and entertaining and had a mind like a, uh, a lightning-like mind. And I, in, in later years, I interviewed a guy called Robin Williams, who we all know. I mean, Robin Williams is, as you as a comedy right. man know, Robin got up there and would, would, would just blast out and jump from A to B to Z back again. Unbelievable. But John Lennon had the same kind of lightning speed mind as as did uh, as did Robin Williams and and John was always fun and John would provoke you and he loved to do it he loved to needle you he called me Ivan the Terrible I said no it's Ivor it was always Ivan the Terrible because that's John and uh, Ringo was a drummer and and uh, I always say that drummers probably are not the the brains of Burbank <laughs> or wherever but he was a nice guy uh, sweet guy. Uh, who got drunk a lot, and, and when he got drunk, he, he fell on the floor giggling or fell asleep. I saw him a few times giggling and, and asleep. But he was charming uh, in, in, in a kind of naive way. And that was that was the four boys then. I mean, the vision that you have today, Steve, and all your listeners um, is, is of, of a different Beatles to the ones I knew when they were young. Now, now did they ever talk about Peter Best? They never talked about Peter Best. Did you ever meet him? No, I never met him. I never met him. But but in retrospect, and I'm sure you can understand that, can you believe how Peter Best has gone through life now being the guy that was ejected? Uh, you kind of feel a bit sad because life has these strange turns. I mean, when they asked Ringo to join the Beatles, Ringo said, well, you know, he didn't say yes right away. He was with uh, Rory and the Hurricanes, Rory whatever is you know that group right and he said i've got another three months to do with rory so you know i'd like to finish my contract with and then i'll come and join you and that was ringo that was the way he was but pete best well i i, I don't know it's a tough it's a tough road to hoe i know it's one of those things you sit there and go wow you know yeah. i i could have been a beetle yeah. i mean first of all if you could be anything but it could have been a beetle now now what was it like traveling i mean was it was it because when i used to stand up comedy you know, it would get monotonous. But now, given we were driving in our cars <laughs> and staying in crappy hotels, I'm sure, you know, it was quite different for you. What was it like for you? And had you, I mean, I know you had traveled for your writing probably before, but to travel, I mean, you're you're going out. You're, you're taking off. What was that like? And was there any, like, do you ever get just, like, sit there in the middle and just start to get stir crazy? Well, it wasn't so much that, because don't forget, I could leave the hotel room, uh, whereas the Beatles were trapped. They were the prisoners. But but it was it became fairly commonplace. I mean, the exciting thing was that we were in limo number two, and the Beatles were in the first limo, and we everywhere we, we arrived at the airport, we got motorcycle escorts. It would be like it was like traveling royalty. It was an unreal experience. And then we'd get to the hotel, and there'd be hundreds of girls screaming, and the Beatles would fight their way through, get up to their room, be stuck in their rooms. And then we go to the press conference, which the Beatles loved to do, because they could then quick fire. They, they, they were like stand-up comedians. They were doing a comedy act 
if you look at some of those press conferences, they finished each other's. It was like the Marx Brothers and the and 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 Bud Abbott and Lucas Stella and those old comedians. The Beatles were fast. They could th throw a line out and and Paul would finish it or Ringo would answer. So it was fun to see those press conferences. And after a while, the Beatles got fed up, and one of us had to say the the, the kind of the cliched question, which meant it's like the end of the press conference. Uh, when do you think the bubble will burst? And then that was the last question, and off they went. So that so it was a lot of sameness, but great fun, uh, an incredible experience that I that that I'd never been exposed to anything. So I thought, well, this is the way rock stars go around, and here I am. What was it like being just involved? I mean, you think about it. You're in that pandemonium. It's not. It's like anything. You know, you can be involved in a crowd, but you're in the middle of it. I mean, I mean, do you ever feel like? And I know you weren't a Beatle, so you could go out to the hotel. But when there's something going on, you're with them. As you said, you're in the second limo. It's not like you know. It's not like you're you're a guy in the back, like just shut up. You're with them, and that's your job to be with them. You're you know you're lazy liaison to the paper. Did it ever? Did you ever get claustrophobic? Or ever, did the crowd ever bother you? Or did that stuff like? Did you ever sit there and go, "Man, you know they're going to crush us" or anything like that? Well, yes, indeed, I did. Um, two things I should mention. Number one, that, that sitting in the front row in the same seat every concert and hearing the same ten songs every single night—they didn't deviate—and then getting hit by wayward jelly beans, you know, those little hard pebbles. <laughs> Uh, you know, I used to carry a newspaper and hold it to the back of my neck. Seriously. Why were they throwing it? Well, the they were throwing it because George said he liked jelly oh, babies. Okay. <laughs> uh, and jelly babies are soft, uh, pliable things. And jelly beans are like little pebbles. So everybody threw them and most of them fell short and hit me on the ear. So, uh, so you got that. There was one occasion, I must tell you, that every time we heard Long Tall Sally, we knew that was the end of their gig. And we had a we had to get up and go into the second limo because as soon as that song was finished, down down went the guitars and the drumsticks and the Beatles were out in the limo before anybody stood up and we were out of the stadium or the venue. But a couple of times, because young women were pretty savage in their passion, uh, the Beatles got away uh, in, in a meat truck, in, in an in a ambulance to... to because it was dangerous and on one occasion and this happened to me i was in the limo and it was slightly frosted glass uh dark glass and suddenly about 20 girls started hammering on on the, on my car and they actually shook it they almost could have pushed it over and i i tried to say i'm not a beetle do i look like a beetle but it didn't matter and they and it was scary and i and i always say this that i i i worried that one day my my parents in london would get a, a, a message saying that i'm sorry mrs davis your son has been crushed to death by beetle fans thank heavens it never happened exactly but it was scary believe me it was scary because it is, it is pandemonium and you think about it it's like and you always see like in those mall tours it's always these young girls they go nuts i mean they're they're sit there they you see them with like they have a nice little jacket and their hair is all done nice and in two seconds later it's worse than like a Black Friday sale out here when people are fighting over a TV. They're going crazy. Now, people must have tried to get get you to get them to sup to the Beatles. I mean, were you constantly getting harangued? Well, I was when they heard an English accent because they assumed I was with the group. Um, I mean, it did have a few little benefits. Uh, um, I always say I was uh, say that in a way uh, I, I was able to uh, acquire some leftovers. Right. And I use that term rather loosely because... I always remember my, my my nicest stories was this. We were in we were in um, Dallas and we were in a hotel right next to a, a sort of ersatz bunny club. It was a fake bunny club. And then a, a beautiful lady came up to me and said, you know, I'm the den mother of these girls in the club and they would like to meet the Beatles. So I turned them over to Mal or Neil. I think it was Mal this time who was one of the road managers, Mal Evans, who came to L.A. eventually and got shot by cops many years later in a drug-related thing. A sad story for Mal, nice big guy, very, very capable at what he did. To cut a long story short, this young, this lady who was all of about 28 and a den mother, and elderly for me, I'm elderly, an, uh, an older chick, uh, got a couple of the girls to meet the Beatles, and then she, she took me out for a beautiful bottle of champagne, and, and and other fringe benefits which were which, which were charming so so it, it did happen and mothers did say to me 
I'll do not quite. I'll do anything. But what what will it take to 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 get the girls into the Beatles? And I I mean I I couldn't do that. I could sometimes say to Mal, as I did in the in the, in the in the bunny uh, mode. You know, there's some lovely ladies who want pictures taken with with the boys. Here it is, and uh, Mal sometimes was helpful on that. So um, it it wasn't totally without value. What were uh some of your favorite cities in a tour where you think that they just were one where you enjoyed the city and two, the crowds just seemed to be more up for the Beatles. Well, of course, uh, Atlantic city was, was a fun city because we'd never been anywhere like that. I'd never been there, but I remember, believe it or not, uh, after the Beatles and their, 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 their sort of um, companionship and the film, I went out to see, uh, a lady in a nightclub called Sophie Tucker, who was who was a singer and a, a, a kind of a, a, I mean, that was a great evening. I went to a nightclub, but we didn't go to too many places because once we were in the hotel, we stayed there and the Beatles never went anywhere. John said to me after the tour finished that he would love to have seen Las Vegas, but they couldn't go anywhere in Las Vegas. They had two concerts and a press conference. And they, when they wanted to do a photo opportunity, they could not go into the casino. So the uh, hotel, the Sahara Hotel, took the slot machines or the fruit machines up to their room for pictures. So they bought, the Beatles would have loved to have seen more of America. And most of the time, Steve, they didn't know which city they were in. They knew they were in Vegas. But many of the cities, whether it was Milwaukee or, or they knew they were in Canada because somebody came aboard and asked for their passports. And first of all, they asked for autographs and then they asked for passports. So the Beatles honestly sometimes didn't know where they were and they couldn't enjoy the city we i could get out and about but i felt kind of sorry for them being trapped and they said they would have loved to have seen more now what made you decide to write the book because as i said you know it was 1964 there it was a tour and you know you've you've written many other you know you've written the other book you've written forever you've you've you know you worked at la la weekly la weekly no uh, uh, los angeles magazine la magazine yeah. la yeah. mag yeah that's their email la mag i'm trying yeah. to get a, have them yeah, do sure. an article about me that's i just got back to from la mag so now what, what made you decide was it just something that you you had these stories and i mean what made you decide to sit there and go you know what i, I want to write this i mean was there a certain reason well um what happened was I had the stories there, and uh, every time I talked about them to friends at uh, dinner parties, they wanted to hear more. And what actually happened was, uh, sadly, three years ago, my wife died, who was a, a writer with me and a, a companion and a, and, a, and a broadcaster, and I was a little bit lost. And um, uh, my kids said, hey, Dad, you know, why don't you get stuck in? And you've always told us about the Beatles. I said, another Beatle book, you know. But they said, well, write it from your vantage point. I mean, you were there. Uh, most people who've written books about the Beatles were never there. So that's how the Beatles and me on tour came about. I sat down and, and, and banged it out fairly quickly. I have a pretty good memory. Uh, I, I was able to get all my clippings from London and talk to uh, a, a few of the surviving people that were on the trip. A radio guy called Art Schreiber, a guy called Tony Delano in the south of France, and a few other people that were, were, were there. And so I got off my backside and, and, and hammered it out, and, and here it is. What is it like looking at your old, your old clips? Because, once again, we all grow, and that is well, yeah, but a little over 50 years ago. You're, you're a young pup when you're writing these original things. What's it like now when you're looking back at them, and did you sit there and, did you, you, did you, did you, sit there and you go, wow, I've really grown as a writer, or do you go, Man, I was really good when I was younger. No, I think you say I've really grown as a writer. You know, unfortunately, it was it, the, the writing was not for sophisticated. It didn't have any sense of humor. I mean, I, I wish I had been a better op-ed thinker, thinker in my in my 20s uh, and with an ability to, to, to take an overview of life. I think none of us do that. If uh, Steve, if you'd done that, you would have bought half of downtown Burbank when it was cheap. Right. I mean, I'm being a bit facetious here. You know what I mean? We don't. We we don't have the wisdom, the the depth. Uh, we know certain things, and I was kind of a young, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed guy with not too much uh, depth that way. Because I wish I had. It's like all the autographs I got, which I gave away. We don't think 
50 years from now, these are going to be legends. Nobody does. As I said earlier, even the Beatles, they never knew it would last that long. So so I look at those articles and I think they're, they're workmanlike, they're competent, but they're not very good. They're not terribly good. And with my book, I was able to get a little bit of sense of humor in. I think sense of humor is important. You know this. You've done this for a living. Comedy, sense of humor, making people laugh and, 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 and presenting something in a, an amusing fashion is terrific. And I get satisfaction out of that. Now, when you were on tour with them, as it was winding down, were you depressed or were you sitting there? I mean, not depressed, but, but were you sitting there going, okay, I'm going to miss this? Or were you sitting there going, you know what? You, know, I can only, you can only take so much bedlam for, for you know, forever. I mean, what, was, what were your feelings? And did, did your feelings change? I mean, did the excitement, you know, because being on the beginning of it, it has to be exciting. And then in the middle, I'm sure it's like anything, you probably get a little like, complacent like uh, you said same old 10 songs geez i'd watch this shit every night yeah. but i mean how was it for you when did you sit there and then when you when the tour ended were you were you bummed for a little bit well strangely enough uh I, I wasn't i thought this is another story that i've been doing i've had a terrific time i must tell you i mean we're staying in great hotels with these rock and roll people with the beatles uh who were who were still very very big but but believe it or not i i didn't have the wisdom to think I should have made more of this. I went on, I think, I think I went back and the next story I did for the Daily Express was the Warren Commission report. So I went from the Beatles to the Warren Commission report. But um, over the years, even over the years, I didn't get too excited because, uh, to be honest, I have, I've had a very rich uh, life and I, I'm still fairly going on that way and enjoying myself with, with this Beatles resuscitation. You know, it's it kind of kick-started my life again, strangely enough. I never thought it would. So I didn't leave and feel depressed. I mean, I, I, I got very fond of Derek Taylor, the Beatles press guy, and we stayed in touch, and then Derek came to L.A. to to handle the publicity for the Beach Boys and, and for the Birds and, and all these uh, emerging groups. So I, I did keep in touch with, with Derek very closely. He came to my wedding. We became fast friends and then he went back to work uh, for 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 brian epstein and the beatles much later and apple but uh, when the story was over it's it's when you work in a daily newspaper you write a story you get immersed in the story and the next day you forget about it because you're thinking about tomorrow's story and in a way that's that's a good thing and a bad thing it's a good thing because you 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 run on with whatever's next it's a bad thing because I wish I had had, as I say, the wisdom to have written, kept a diary in more detail. Fortunately, I had my clippings, which were so-so. I mean, it was all the mad crowd, the, the, the police, the cops couldn't handle the girls. I mean, cops were not trained to handle 16-year-old fighting furies. <laughs> they were handling riots, but they weren't handling these young women, and they didn't know how to handle them. Now, how did you get all? The, how did you get the rights to all the pictures in the book? Um, what happened was, um, I had a couple of pictures that I had in my own personal collection, but I was also very friendly with Harry Benson, who was a brilliant. He's still around in New York, a sensational photographer. We stayed friends, and I called him up and said, "Harry, can you give me a couple of the pictures for the book?" He did. Uh, I also there was Kirk Gunther, another brilliant photographer who is no longer living, and I was able to get his son to give me some of the pictures, and so I was able to collect a, a terrific selection of pictures to use in the book. And and you know when you do a book about that, you need pictures because every time I'm whether whether I'm at a Beatle convention or in London or wherever, people pick up the book and the first thing they do is look at the pictures. So pictures are important, and I. I actually scrounged a lot. See, that's funny. You're so right about the pictures because I remember when I was a kid, I would get these NFL football books and I would read them all the time. But I remember it was some, I don't know, you, it was mail order or I don't even know. But I remember I'd get them on Christmas or i get them on my birthday and you'd want to read. But the first thing you do is look for the pictures. Yes. Now, have you met people that remember that tour? Or have you talked to people? Or have you gotten emails or anything where people say, God, I remember yes. that tour. And how does how does how did they find you? Well, some of them found me. They got the book and they sent me a note and they said to me, um, "I was in San Francisco with my friends. My parents took me to the concert, and I can tell you, they said, I know that Paul 
was in love with me and Ringo was in love with my friend. And I said, well, how do you know that? He said, because, she said, because as we sat there, we waved at him and he waved back at us. So this is part of the magic of the Beatles. Every girl that went along was in love with one of the Beatles. And they somehow assumed that the love was returned. Right. I mean, it's kind of crazy, really, psychologically. <laughs> but so that's what would happen. And the other thing that I find somewhat eerie is just because I knew them and touched them, people come up and want their picture taken with me as if, you know, I have some magic. I happen to be a lucky guy who was in the right place at the right time. So some of that is a bit weird. Like they know me, so they must know the Beatles and they're closer. And at the Beatles conventions, it happens all the time. It is it is a bit freaky at times. Now, when did you start doing the Beatles conventions? Because the funny thing you'd say about those conventions, conventions are the rage now. I've had people from Star Trek on my show. I've had the yes. sci-fi things. And it's amazing because the people know so much about you. Like if they sat there... They may have not, the Beatles, they may not know anything of you before, and they see the book, and now they probably Googled you and tried to find articles. When did you start getting involved in the conventions? Um, what happened was, somebody told me about it, uh, Mark Lapidos runs Beatles Fan Fest. It's in Chicago, in New York. It's been in LA, uh, uh, but it, it isn't in LA this, this year. It's going to be in Chicago again. Um, and a lot of people said, go to the convention, because, because thousands of people show up and they want they want to buy mementos they want to buy books and they want to hear about people who who touch the beatles so it was a fairly natural and i must say i've been there i i i got friendly with bob eubanks who was a guy an la promoter bob eubanks uh, he did the he's the rose bowl parade he was a television personality you know who he is yeah the newlywed game yes yeah. newlywed game yeah he was he was yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's right so bob bob eubanks and all these people and 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 i got friendly with the beatles uh, Frida Kelly, who was the Beatles' secretary back in the early days. It becomes a kind of, I mean, it's strange. I have a, a terrific family. I've got kids and grandkids. But the, I've now got a Beatle family. Believe it or not, people who keep in touch with me, uh, ask me to go to, I'm going to the Grammy Museum in April in, in Mississippi, of all places, a new museum, to speak about the Beatles. And it, it's become a whole new world. I, wa I want to go on and write a few other books, which I'm writing, but this keeps dogging my footsteps. Now, what do you, when you say you're going to Mississippi to speak, uh, what are you going to give the speech about? I mean, how do you, and how do you formulate it? You're a writer, but are you going to be telling more of a story? Or are you going to be doing a Q&A? Or how does that work? Well, first of all, I'll start off with some of the things that you've asked me. How did I happen to get to join the Beatles? What happened? Uh, and then I will show some of my pictures from the book. And then the most exciting and the most fun time is when you involve the audience in questions and answers and they always have they have questions to ask about everything under the sun so it will be a, a, a speech some pictures and maybe a little video of, of, of a Beatles uh, background and then the Q&A and it goes in a flash and I enjoy it and they enjoy it and they hopefully buy a book right now have you been in contact after that tour, were you in contact with any of the Beatles over the years, even if it was just... And it's weird, because now, like, back now, you could send someone an email. Yes. You know, back then, you couldn't, and, you know, a letter is going to get lost. But were you in contact after that with any of the Beatles? I was. I mean, I, I met George again, because um, uh, he was was uh, he was promoting his album, and Derek Taylor called me and said, come down, George is in town, let's... let's I think it was... Uh, I forget the name of the album, but anyway, he was promoting that. And then I saw John... When he was with May uh, Pang uh, after he left uh, Yoko for a little bit and lived in L.A. and got his lost weekend that lasted 18 months. I saw him then before, of course, before he was assassinated. And I saw Paul about four years ago when he did a concert to benefit the 9-11. He was in New York. Paul was at the time and he was leaving and he went back to New York and did his concert with funds going. So I saw him then. I saw Ringo about a year and a half ago at the LA Grammy Museum when he was, uh, his an exhibition of some of his memorabilia was being opened. I've seen Paul at, uh, in, at Dodger Stadium. I've seen Ringo in Paso Robles and Santa Barbara. Uh, they do, he, they still, they still con do concerts. Yeah, now, now do they remember you when they see you? Well, um, 
or do, I, I, do you sit there and try to say, hey, no, I, I mean, I, I, I always, when I meet somebody, even if they may know me, I always introduce myself and, 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 and put them in a situation where they, you know, they're not embarrassed to say, who the hell are you? So, yeah, I say hi, and, 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 and they're very friendly. Uh, whether they remember me, I don't know, but um, hopefully they do, but who knows? They should, they should. Now, how has the reception been to the book? Have people enjoyed it? And now, once again, because we are in the world of email and Twitter, people can send you stuff. And you said how people send you stuff because, you know, in San Francisco and stuff like that. But what has the reception been? And are you happy with what, what your outcome is? Because yeah, yeah I think so. I mean, the reception to the book has been phenomenal. Um, it, only because it is a, an up-close and personal uh, encounter with the Beatles. So I haven't BSed people about stories, stories that I write about or stories that I experience and I happened with the Beatles. Somebody in Ireland wants me to do, uh, can I do a stage show talking about the Beatles with Beatle music? My own theatre company in Southern California has, has talked about doing uh, a kind of a one-man show with music and and um, I got interviewed by Ron Howard um, for, a, for a, a film he's making that should be out this year about the Beatles in the 60s. So it, it, it's happening. Uh, I, somebody came out, to, they're doing, a, doing a, a, a television documentary about the night the Beatles met Elvis, and I was there that night, so they came out and interviewed me. So it goes on. There's a lot happening. Who knows? Uh, but, but I'm not... In, in Hollywood, as you know, and as I'm sure a lot of people know, people say, we'd love to do this. We'd love to make it into a so-and-so. Uh, five years later, you know, you, you never hear, hear a word. So I, I'm not, uh, f you know, I'm not f fooled by, by this. And if it happens, it'll happen. If it doesn't happen, I'll continue. Now, you said you would like to work on some other books. Anything specifically in mind you want to write on? Well, um, there's, there's, what's happened is um, since... Since I wrote about the Beatles, people have asked me about, like you did, about other adventures. And I've had terrific stories. I mean, traveling with Elizabeth Taylor and knowing Jane Fonda in her various incarnations of, 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 of the, 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 the sex symbol, the, 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 the presidential wife, maybe, with Tom Hayden and, and stories like that. And, and dancing with a famous, world-famous ballerina. Stories. I have some great stories in Africa with Richard Burton, uh, Muhammad Ali driving me around LA. Some funny stories about that. So I might, I may do that. And I'm also dancing around with another uh, movie book, uh, possibly. And then there's a terrific murder story involving a guy I knew in Southern California who turned out to be a mass murderer. So I, I, I'm sort of juggling, deciding what to do next. And um, I, I mean, I wish. I had. I wish I was uh, 27. I could. Right. I could write them all. Now, now you said a theater company you're involved in. Yeah. Well, I'm not involved. I'm. I'm a, a great supporter of a very good local theater company in Southern California, and they've talked to me about maybe doing uh, something with Beatle music and my story. But the only problem is, and I don't know if you know this, but when you want to use Beatle music, uh, Apple charge you an arm, a leg, and, right. and and an eyebrow. I mean, it is very, very expensive to do that. And you may see, and some of your listeners may see documentaries about the Beatles, but they don't use Beatle music because it's too expensive. What's the theater company? The theater company is called the Rubicon Theater Company in Ventura, California. And you live up in Ventura. I do. One of my friends is the detective. So if you ever, if you ever run into trouble, say, ask for Ted Caliento. Ted Caliento, he's a detective with Ventura PD? Yes. Oh, okay. I, I, I knew him years ago, and I remember when he became a police officer. Yeah. And he became, he became a detective very quick. He, he, was, he was an ex-military guy. He was, me and my ex-wife lived above him and his ex-wife in San Diego. I've actually been to two of his weddings. He's divorced again. If he, goes, if he gets the third time, I'll probably go to that wedding too. Yeah. So now, now you tweet. You tweet a lot. I know you have a Twitter. Yeah, account. I do tweet. It's one of those things. I mean, I'm an old geezer now, and I have to get into the habit of tweeting. But I have, But what amazes me, and 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 I don't know if it does does you, Steve, is that presidents, when they want to get a message out, they tweet. I mean, it is unbelievable. So I do tweet, and it's I Davis Beatles whatever. I can never remember. Uh, if something strikes me as outrageous or ridiculous, or I want to comment about about the the, the, the candidate with the hair, uh, but but I don't want to get too political, but I still have strong opinions. Uh, I then I might send fire something off that way. So I tweet, and I have a Facebook, the Beatles and me on tour Facebook, which has a lot of followers now, and I I 
I post quest, uh, pictures and, and we all do. We spend a lot of time. Now we seem to be spending all our lives on Facebook. Right. Isn't it amazing how, and you've been in the business forever, how social media has just changed the way you promote something. Because before, if you wrote this book 25 years ago, how would you get the word out? You know, you'd have to get in touch with people. You know, there wasn't internet radio. There wasn't as many access to radios. And it's just amazing how when you do come out with a product, it can be promoted and sometimes you don't have to leave your house. That's right. It's it is it, it it's something that an old fogey like me has to get my mind around. But if you get somebody who knows the biz, uh, marketing and PR, uh, they tell you how important social media is, and it is. It is it's amazing, and it's a whole new world that we have to learn about. And if you want a successful book, you need to get on social media. Uh, in the old days, when you wrote a book. You, the, the publishing company would send you on the road for a month and you know if it's Tuesday this must be Belgium and you would you would do another interview uh, but now it's it's it, you know the world the world is an open oyster now where can people find your book uh, people can find my book on my website the book is called the Beatles and me on tour and the website is Davis beatles.com so that's the way and they get it they can also get it on amazon yes yeah and get it on amazon uh they can get it uh and the best place is really amazon because that way they get the book quickly and um and it's a it's a good speedy easy read and now how can they get in touch with you let's say if, if they can they get in touch with you through your website yeah through the website there's a little uh, kind of a thing that they that you pay for and anybody goes onto my website the messages come to me and the reason I don't give out my email address and I'm sure you have the same problem is is we already got bombarded with three million emails more than we ever want and so if I if, if, but it does come through to me and I would be very happy to answer questions and I do I help people launch a book the guy wrote to me and said you know I met you at this convention how would you how you know how can i get my book done can you can you do it for me i said i'm not in the book publishing business we have a few minutes left when when's your next convention coming up next convention is i'm doing uh, i'm doing a speech in london in april and then before that on april the 1st and april the 2nd i'm going to the new grammy museum in cleveland mississippi which is a fantastic in in a room in a an auditorium they have built which is which is a copy, a larger copy of the Abbey Road studio. And that's the place where I'll be speaking, a kind of a keynote speaker with a bunch of other Beatle people about to open this new museum. So that is um, uh, actually April the 1st, April the 2nd. I'm doing the American Jewish um, University in Los Angeles in March as a speaker. I'm going to talk about the Jewish Beatles. I mean, you've probably never heard of the Jewish no. Beatles, but there is. And... Uh, and there are other other book signings all over the place that I don't unfortunately have, but but keep an eye on my on my website. I want to thank you for coming on. I'm glad uh, you can it, make it's it. It's been fun, been fun talking to you, and uh, I want to I want to hear next time you invite me on. Give me some of your comedy routine gags. Oh no, I don't do that. I I, I got out of that. I, I actually did a show for the first time in like six months. I did a show two weeks ago, and it was fun. It was in Burbank. It was around the corner. I miss it. I just don't feel like going on the road. It's a long story. Um, so the website is Ivor Davis. Beatles.com. Correct. Okay. So go go check them out, people. Follow them on Twitter. Uh, just just search Ivor Davis. There's not a lot of other Ivor Davises. So follow him on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. I tweet a lot, especially during the politics. I always, I just, they're funny jokes. Some of my friends get mad at me. You know, I'm a divided house. I don't like Hillary. I like Bernie. Joanne likes Bernie, loves Hillary, hates Trump. She said, if Trump wins, She's moving out. She's moving to Italy. I said, well, then you know what? Have a good life because, you know, Italy's fine, but I'm still staying in America. So I just, I just, I can't do Cooper Talk in Italy. They won't understand me. Anyway, so uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over uh, 470 episodes. You can also email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. You can always uh, ask me what guests you want to hear. I'm always hustling, trying to get different guests, musicians, writers like Ivar, actors, you know, directors. I get, you know, I, I'm trying to get a mixture of people. Also, if you have a Google, uh, Google Play account. You can get a free app, the Cooper Talk app, for your cell phone or for your um, tablet. It's Cooper Talk app. You can hear all my shows. Uh, don't forget, CafeValet.com. It's a great coffee maker. And I'm telling you people, it's $25 for the starter kit. Put in the name Cooper 
and it's only $20, and that's good. And don't forget my book, StopTheSalt.com. Remember when I went through my heart problem? I uh, rewrote the cookbook, and it's 120 easy recipes. No pictures that intimidate you. No long, long recipes and ingredients. It's just good eating. It's healthy eating for one. Get it at BarnesandNoble.com or Amazon.com, or get it at StopTheSalt.com, because if you get it there, I make more money. And then I will also sign it for you. So that works. So buy the book. So once again, check out Ivar's book. And I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I will talk to you guys next week.